Oh, hey, there you are. <laughs> it's good to have you back. Thanks for tuning in again. Or if you're here for the first time, welcome to this world, this little podcast world, this little feed called Modern Day Philosophers. One of millions of podcast feeds out there, but it's the one you're listening to right now. And for that, I'm very appreciative. I always have to remind myself how, how lucky I am that people tune into this show. It can be really tough, you know, just being very honest with you, being a comedian, uh, living in Los Angeles, which is a very expensive city, and trying to support myself and my wife, trying to get by, just the day-to-day, there's no big excitement about me. There never really was. Every now and then somebody gets excited about me for a minute, but it fades away. But I'm not, I've never been one of the cool kids. I've never been one of comedy's cool kids. I've never been somebody who was swept up by the system. I wasn't put in the system. I wasn't one of the guys that Comedy Central gave five minutes to and then a half hour to and developed into a show person. I've always sort of just been out here on my own, making my own projects and hoping people tune into them and hoping somehow I could break into that thing. And then sometimes questioning if I even want to be part of it anymore. I don't know. But what makes me the happiest in all of this is, is the fact that I can put something out that's original, that I made, um, and, and people tune into it. You. You make me happier than anybody else in my career. You, the listener. Whoever you are. Because you make it all worth it. Sometimes I do these and uh, they cost me money to do. I don't always make money. Sometimes I'm lucky enough that I have a wonderful sponsor, like the one you're about to hear an ad from right now. Warning, stand-up records may cause intestinal distress, fits of insane laughter, instant diarrhea, existential malaise, headaches, nausea, dizziness, vomiting, seasonal affective disorder, more headaches, pneumomono ultramicroscopic silicovolcanoconiosis. Stand-up records should not be handled by women who are pregnant, may become pregnant, have ever been pregnant, or personally know anyone who has been pregnant. Do not consult your doctor if he's operating heavy machinery. Stand-up records is for external application only. And stand-up records is, of course, good for a few laughs. So remember that's standuprecords.com. For the world's finest comedy CDs, DVDs, and merchandise, that's standuprecords.com. The revolution will be hilarious. Stand-up records, ladies and gentlemen, have sponsored many episodes of this show. And uh, the guy who you're going to hear today is the founder of Stand-Up Records, a man who, who much like me, has always kind of worked outside of the system and carved out a little niche for himself. Me as a comedian, Dan Schlissel, our guest today as a record producer. But he's gone up against all the big guys, against Viacom, against uh, all these companies that have tons of money behind them, and uh, he's survived. And sometimes he's even thrived. But mostly, just the fact that he's survived is impressive. If you think about it, he's just one guy. And he's responsible for probably millions of people's enjoyment listening to so many different records that he's put out. And nobody and nobody gave it to him either. He was never handed the job. Nobody said, here, here's a record company we'd like you to run. He just made it. He just made it from scratch, kind of like I have done with this podcast. I'm my own employer and I'm my own boss. Now I would love I would love for somebody to say, hey, we have a platform set up and we're willing to pay you to do something, that would be great. Host a show, 
be a writer, do something. It would feel great, it would feel validating, and it would pay my bills for once. But it hasn't happened yet. And sometimes that gets me really down. And then I have to remind myself that I can only control what I can control. And what I can do is keep putting out content and keep putting out things that I think are great. And this podcast that I put out, Modern Day Philosophers, I think it's great. And if you're tuning in, hopefully you feel the same way. And today's episode is with a great friend of mine. I'm using the word great a lot, but that's how I feel right now. I feel great. It's a lie. I don't feel great. I'm fighting through depression. But I'm doing a good job. And by the way, if any of you out there suffer with depression, I don't like to talk about it too much on the show. I haven't talked about it in many seasons because I don't want to be labeled as the depressed guy. I don't want people to say, oh, that's the guy, the depression guy, because nobody wants to be the depression guy. But if you suffer with depression, what I can tell you is this. I fell into a very, very bad depression. Some of you might remember me talking about it a few years ago, sort of when I started this show. And it was crippling. It was tough. I, could, I had a hard time putting things out. Uh, I had a, t- a hard time just living life. I went to a lot of therapy. And um, I, I don't know. It was a very, very tough time for me. And I got out of it. I came out of it. And then I was sort of like, I was sort of kind of catching a groove. I was, I was, I was up, uh, up on myself. I was ready. I was ready to make things happen. I was pounding hard at the door, knocking at the door of life, trying to like break into something and, and, uh, re- hit rejection, rejection, rejection. I was like, don't worry, fight through it, fight through it. And ultimately, I guess it sort of got to me. And uh, I had a few things almost happen, and they didn't happen, and then nothing happened, and then nothing seems like it was ever going to happen. And I started finding myself slipping back into depression, and I was like, I cannot let that happen. I don't want to see that happen to myself again. I can't get back to that place. And that's where I am now. I'm fighting, fighting really hard not to get back to that place, because I know what that's like, and I don't want to go back there. I'm treading water. I'm treading water so I don't drown. And hopefully if I keep treading water long enough, I'll start swimming again. That's the plan. All right? So I only tell you that because I know some people out there deal with this also. And all I could tell you is just try and put the depression on a shelf, so to speak. Put it away. I know You know it's there. Meditate. Pray. Do whatever you can to calm your soul. And just keep, keep moving forward as best as you can. Keep putting out content, like the show that you're about to hear right now. It was hard for me to, to put this out. You don't understand that when, when you're depressed, you don't want to do anything. And while I wouldn't label myself as fully depressed again, like I said, I'm in the treading water stage right now. So I'm fighting through it. I'm putting this out. I'm also putting out my other podcasts. I'm mostly bull market. I have good days, and I have not as good days. And in the meantime, I'm going to just keep surviving Until hopefully one day I could be thriving. That's it. That's my inspirational talk for you for the day. And I hope it helps some of you out there. And sorry for everybody that it bored. Okay. Now, without further ado, except for the intro song, here's my talk with my longtime friend, the founder of Stand Up Records, the guy who brings you this show, besides me, and besides your donations. Some of you have been given donations, and thank you for that. Some people think, oh, what's a, what's a donation? A donation is I keep uh, I keep the lights on, you know? 
You give a donation to the show, I could pay the I could pay the bills. I could buy groceries. It it helps me a lot. There is no other thing. There's an occasional stand-up gig, and there's this. And if you think about what life costs, especially in a big city in LA, it's not a lot. So if you're in a position where you're able to give to the show, please go to moderndayphilosophers.net and make a donation. It it it, it means everything. It I, you know. If you can't, just write in and say hello. Thecomical at yahoo.com. Tell me what you think of the show. All right, enough of that. Without further ado, except for the intro song, here's my talk with the great Dan Schlissel. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. How's the wind sound? Gentle breeze. This is nice. Yeah, this is the way I wanted to do it. <sighs> if I could have done it with the ocean in the background too, I would have, but... Yeah. I know that's too much noise. I keep getting that, you know, Billy Joel Allentown song in my head. I love that song. But I keep I keep changing the words to Akumal. <laughs> well, we're sitting here in Akumal, and we're consuming all the alcohol. That's funny. <laughs> you in particular. <clears throat> yeah, I did well. I'm amazed I'm on my feet. Yeah, you drank a lot today. Yeah, that's pretty much all I did today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last night in Akumal at the Comedy Festival, and I'm sitting here with one of my longtime great, great friends and uh, the founder of Stand Up Records, the founder of the Akumal Comedy Festival, and a man who has kept this show going as much as well as a great deal of comedy behind the scenes. There are Little elves that work behind the scenes of comedy, and I wouldn't call you a little elf, Dan. I'm not little, yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, I'd say you're at least a medium-sized elf. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dan, it's a pleasure. Dan Schlissel is sitting here with me. Dan, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Danny. It's it's an honor to, ha to be able to sit here and do this with you. Yeah, we've, we go back, and uh, I kind of want to tell the listeners, like, the first time we met. Yeah, we should, and then we ought to each take our angle on it. Yeah. You know, I'm a big fan of comedy, and when I go to New York City, I tend to go to the Comedy Cellar because that is, even though we're Jews, that is Mecca, right? <laughs> yeah, right? it's comedy so, Mecca. It's comedy Mecca. You know, it's got a great Middle Eastern restaurant, all the best entertainers. It is Jewish. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very Jewish. There's a star of David Stained Glass that gets broken all the time and replaced all the time. Yeah. Uh, not to drop names, I'm friends with a lot of comedians. Dave Attell's been a longtime friend. You know what? If we're going to drop names, now's probably the time. Very briefly, uh, so I know I'm sidetracking you from That's the story, fine. but some of the names that the listeners might know. I've worked with uh, Lewis Black, uh, Doug Stanhope, Maria Bamford, Mark Marin, the Sklar Brothers, Judy Gold. I've done vinyl releases for David Cross and Patton Oswalt and Kyle Kinane. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. It's a Rory who's Stovall, who of today's comedy Hannibal greats. Hannibal Burris. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. 
So, I mean, that's fascinating and interesting, I think. And and I want to come back to that. We'll but come let's back go to back to give some context to the fact that you're hanging out with Dave Attell for sure. Uh, well, I mean, I was, you know, Dave's somebody I don't get to see often, but when I do get to see him, it's always it's always good to hang out for a little while. And then the the, the visit naturally ends, you know, roughly anywhere between 10 minutes and an hour and a half after start, you know. Right. Because you've caught up and it's, okay, see you later, Dave. And how many years ago was this? It's got to be at least 10, right? At least. I think it has to be at least It has 10. to be at least 10. I, I can't remember exactly, but I about 10 years ago. Yeah. So anyway, I'm hanging out with him, and he goes outside to smoke, because already the smoking laws in New York were like that. And I'm smoking with him, and you come walking down the street, and he goes, you guys ought to meet each other. You both, you both like comedy. You guys ought to know each other. Right. You're both named Dan. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't understand how to take it when that happened. I thought... Uh, why is David Tell pawning this guy on me? That was my first thought. And then I thought maybe he's just, uh, maybe he's annoyed with this guy or maybe he's wor worried that I'm going to start talking to him and he doesn't want to talk to me. And I thought the same exact thing without even knowing it. <laughs> he's putting us two together so he can get the fuck out of here. Right. So I thought, be that as it may, let me meet this guy. You know, uh, I, I didn't know who you are, what to think of you, but... Here's this big guy, this big Jew, as Jackie made. What would Jackie call you? I didn't know they made a Jew so big. I didn't know they made a Jew so big like this. Yeah. Unbelievable. So uh, here's this giant Jew, and Dave Attell has, uh, has basically stuck us together. And I thought, you know, what the heck? I'm not doing anything anyway. I'm not that busy. Let's let's uh, let's see what happens. You, you, you were busy. You forget you had a show to do with the Village Lantern. Yeah. In but fact, you were like, I've got a show. You ought to come see me do stand-up. And it is a good way to meet a stranger and then fuck them off. So in case, you know, if, if, if I'm some kind of weird nebbish, yeah. you're just like, all right, I got to perform. Good night. See you later. Right, right. But it didn't happen that it way. It didn't happen that way. We, we actually had a good time getting to know each other. You were very funny that night. I think I saw Matty Goldberg that night, too. Yeah, he was also great that night. Yeah, exactly. And I don't remember who all else was on there, but I was taken with you two in particular. Yeah. And uh, you go ahead from there. And and from what I remember, we just wound up hanging out into the wee hours of the night. Uh, we walked. Did we walk to Times Square together? No, no. We walked. We walked over to the subway over in the village. You know, the one that Louis comes up at the beginning of every episode. Oh, right. That's and right. And we took that subway to Times Square. Yes, yeah, I remember Times Square. And we. I mean, I I don't remember. I think he introduced us maybe ten thirty at night, somewhere around there. Right. And we hung out until four thirty in the morning talking. And yeah. we were just standing on a corner in Times Square, just like animated, like arms waving and yeah. like excited about stuff and yeah. just talking. You know. And I knew right there, like a new great friendship was born. And uh, I didn't know that it, the friendship would take us around the world and that we would wind up putting out a record together and that. And, and that I'd wind up, you know, getting to know your wife and, and your then future kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but uh, I, I knew that, that, that it was a special introduction. I knew that night. and we It felt, it felt like, I, oh, God, I met somebody great. Mm -hmm. And we were both into the old comedians. Oh, totally into the old comedians, which is weird because I've got, uh, you're 32, right? Yeah. So I've got 12 years on you. Right. And somehow, like, we're equal. We're exactly equal, and like you know, and and it's the same. Like I feel like I'm 32 when I get to hang out with you. You know, I mean, I feel right. like I'm your age yeah. instead of my age. Right, right. And, but yet, you know the comics I know, even though you shouldn't know them. <laughs> I don't know. I got I got into the old timers. I was a record collector as a kid, and and hanging out with my neighbor Walter, who is an Italian 
World War II veteran who wrote to all the celebrities for autographed pictures because he got a book of celebrity addresses. I got a great education at a young age and all the old timers. That's awesome. So uh, between the two That's things. That's right. You had an autograph collection, right? Yeah. Oh, it was all destroyed in yeah, the hurricane. Yeah, in the flood. Yeah. The only one I was able to salvage is Leslie Nielsen. And well, it's, that's it's pretty not good. worth anything in the condition it's in. I just kept it for sentimental value. Of course. But uh, I remember, like, uh, you know, even Jack Nicholson, I was like, uh, I started peeling it off the plastic, and I was, and I found out later there were better ways to go about it, but it was just, it was just a nightmare. Right. Hurricane. I mean, I, w I can't imagine going through that being a collector myself. Mm. I, I like water is always the enemy when you're a collector. Yeah. You it's know, water and fire are the two enemies. Water can just wash away everything, you know? It made me think about. The biblical story of the flood and just how f water is like, you know, the great eraser, you know, like an Etch-a-Sketch. It's true, but mankind it mankind is showing water right now. We'll show them who's boss. Oh, you know, yeah. We're going to wipe out life on this planet. <laughs> the, I don't the, know. The seas are over-harvested. <laughs> everything's acid. There's drought everywhere. We taught you water. I, I go back to George Carlin on that where he's like... The planet will be fine. The people are fucked. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I suppose all Mother yeah. Nature needs is one big shrug and we're done. You yeah, know? it'll just shake us off, like yeah. you said. You know. Yeah. Well, back to comedy though. Mm -hmm. So then we kept up this relationship, and then you started doing these awesome old school things for me when I'd come to New York. Right. Right. You know, you took me to meet Jackie Mason and in a Midtown McDonald's. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, Jackie Mason always uh, loved that McDonald's and he used to take me he used to take me there all the time because he liked to hang out there but he also he especially the reason he liked to hang out there was because there were always these black people there we called Schwarzes. yeah which and, is also now now derogatory supposedly but but that's not how he meant it yeah of course it's a description <laughs> not necessarily meant to be so he he he's I loved it. the Schwarzes love me I don't know how it is that they know who I am. I don't know how they're familiar with my work, but they have, it happens to be a fact that they love me and they can't get enough of me. And, uh, and, <laughs> and in the meantime, the guy is practically New York City. Right. And we go to McDonald's and, and all, the, all these black guys would walk in and be like, Hey, Mr. Mason! What's up, Mr. Mason? Jackie Mason! Can I get a picture with you, Jackie Mason? He'd be like, of course, of course, why not? And they take a picture together, and then they, the guy would walk over and be like, I can't believe it, it's a phenomenon. The Schwarzes love me. So, <laughs> so. You see, in, in like, those, you know, when we lose Jackie, God, God forbid... But when yeah. we lose them, like, we lose some of the last of those accents, those old-world accents that I grew up with. Right. You know, my aunts, you know, my, my parents emigrated from Israel, but my aunt emigrated to America after the war. My uncle and my my, my uncle's brother and, like, mm -hmm. those accents, they, they go, you, you know Myron Cohen? Like, of course, yeah. The reason those records mean so much to me is I get to have those voices back, you know? It the, feels like family to you. It feels like my family. And the, yeah. and the mentality and the thought patterns and, it, you know... All of that stuff. So uh, that's how you and I bonded. Right. was about, like, not only the nature of comedy, but the nature of New York City and the Jewish nature of both, and which is, look, it's not the be-all, end-all, but it's certainly a big part of things. Right. I definitely am a New York Jew, born and bred, you know, Queens, New York. So. And, and you'll always have that above me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. I'll take that. <laughs> Yeah, we hung out with a Pat Cooper. I know we. Pat who, Cooper, that was great. The way he took over the 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 coffee shop. What do you remember from that? What I remember is we. It was a cold day. We met him on a street corner by the old radio station, right? Uh, right. And we were out there, cold, and he wouldn't stop 
hugging you and pinching your cheek and telling you how much he loved you. Yeah, that's and then he looked at me and goes, "It's very nice to meet you, but this boy, I love this boy." Yeah, and just like on, and like, and like, like, like you were his blood relative. He still loves me like that. God bless him. Yeah, God bless him. Long life to him too, because uh, I mean that guy had. He's, you know, I know him as such an angry, like, roaster and, like, tear-you-apart kind of guy. And to see that sweet, you know, the sweet right. side that's on those old records. Right. And you took me to do that. And you basically took me because you knew I wanted to get something signed. Right, yeah. So it, so it is. It was a trip back down to old New York for you. you know? And not only that, I mean, you wouldn't let me stay at a fucking hotel. Yeah. Like, I was getting to the age of, like, I'm married now. I'm an adult. And I'm going to get my own. <laughs> look, I want my own toilet. Right. I want my own four walls. Right. You know, I want my own air conditioning. You're like, no, absolutely not. You're staying in my apartment. I don't sleep on my bed. You're sleeping in my bed. I'll sleep on the sofa. Wow. And, I, and we, I stayed at your apartment in Times Square. Yeah. I stayed at your apartment in Bushwick. Yeah. I didn't ever stay with you in L.A. because I, I finally said, no, no, I'm putting my foot down. I'm staying in a hotel. Our big mistake. L.A. is the best one out of all of them. But, but that nicer. was before. No, no, it was in the old place. Yeah. Oh, that old place wasn't so great. No, but I mean, I, I like having a hotel, man. I like having my own space. I don't yeah. want to be in anyone's way. I want to. I know, but it's, know. I always love hosting you. I love hanging I, out I know, but you. I mean, we get to hang. Yeah. It's and okay. we always get good meals, you know? Yeah. I mean. A lot of a lot of times, <laughs> you're making me feel good, man. You you you're fucking great. I mean, I, I uh. I'm I don't know what in life makes you who you. I mean, you're a nudnik too. <laughs> you are. You drive people crazy on. A I level. gotta have some Yiddish quality. Yeah, but this is what why we get along so goddamn well. Yeah, I don't. I grew up a lot in the Midwest, you know? My folks moved to the Midwest in 82. So, yeah, I want to know more about your folks. I want to find out more about... I know that your father, you've mentioned, is a, was a Holocaust survivor. Yeah, which, you know, there's a broad definition for Holocaust survivor. So let's get into it. Long story short, my dad was born in Poland, and, you know, he was two years old when the war started. The Nazis were coming. My grandfather knew what that meant because the Nuremberg laws had been passed. They were pretty vocal about like, eh, we don't like your kind around here, mm -hmm. you know? So my grandfather was a, was a cobbler. He made shoes and worked in leather. Mm -hmm. A very common, very Pol uh, Polish Jew sort of thing. Whenever I hear a cobbler, I think of apple cobblers. Yeah, but in this case, we're talking about shoes. Wouldn't it be better if you made apple cobblers? I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Anyway, I don't know how where to go with that one, Danny. Um, this is distracting me. Anyway, uh, he knew what was coming, so he basically destroyed his business mm -hmm. and fled. They, they he took the left shoe from every pair and buried them, so that only right shoes were left. You know, so that they couldn't be used. And he cut all the workable leather into little pieces that couldn't be used for anything. And they fled. And in the political world of things, Stalin and Hitler signed the mutual non-aggression pact that split Poland in case Germany should invade. Mm -hmm. So Germany invaded. Anyone who fled to the Russian half were automatically traitors for not defending their homeland and sent to Siberia. Which and that's what happened to your dad. My father and his family were sent to Siberia. And, and he was two years old. He okay. really must have pissed off Stalin as an infant. And what happened in Siberia? I don't know all the details. I know that my dad, you know, he lost his father in Siberia. And the stories are fairly heartbreaking. My, my, my grandfather was a v deeply religious. And uh, he, he wouldn't work on Yom Kippur. And the Russians said, you don't work, you don't eat. 
and they starved him to death. You don't eat on Yom Kippur anyway. I'm sorry. I'm just, you know, uh, you mean in general he wasn't able to eat. Yeah. Like, you don't work on Yom Kippur. That's the point, right? Right. You don't work, you don't eat. Right. Period. Not just on Yom Kippur. So because he didn't work on Yom Kippur, they starved him. To death. In front of his family. My For dad, one Yom Kippur? Yeah. The Russians didn't have, the, the Soviets didn't have any respect for religion, you got to remember. Yeah, it was against their, it was against communism to be religious. It's against, so, and if you're a political prisoner in Siberia and you're religious, what else are they going to do to you? They're going to starve so you So your to father, death. this was your father's father My was father's starved father to death. My father's father was starved to death in front of him and he was an infant. And, and what like about the, the rest of his family? The rest of his family survived the war. Uh, four sisters, uh, one of which had improper vision because she was, she was wise, you know, to us, to us guard. And the guard hit her in the head with the butt of a rifle, knocked her cross-eyed for the rest of her life. You know, my impulse is always to make jokes when I hear this stuff because it's so painful. It's so so painful, and growing up with it as well. I mean, you know it. I mean, you're. I, we both come from. Holocaust survivors in the same sense. My grandma fled Vienna um, to eventually wind up in Scotland. Her family were sent to Auschwitz. Woof. And um, it, it's, it's so horrible. The, what else? I mean, that's a lot of the Jewish humor. It's just like, how do you, how do you handle it? How, how, do you, how do you grow up with this? I learned about Hitler before the rest of my class. Yeah, me too. Did, did I tell you why, this story? No. When I was in, uh, it was either the end of second grade or beginning of third grade. I think it was third grade. Uh, they asked, they gave us an assignment to draw a picture of what we think will look, look like when we're 30. Oof. And I, I drew a picture of my godfather, may he rest in peace, Amos. And because uh, I thought he was the coolest guy I knew, you know. He right. Was my dad's friend, he was in great shape. He was a bachelor. He always had pretty girlfriends. And I thought, I want to I be like Amos. And Amos had a, a, a little mustache. Not quite as little as the one I drew. I got sent <laughs> to the principal's office when I turned my picture in. And they called my parents. My parents came down to Hebrew Academy. And I got called. In, and, and we're all in the, in the principal's office. And they said, you know why you're here? And I didn't know why. And uh, they were, they, you know, believed me and figured out, okay, I didn't do this on purpose. But apparently what I drew was a great-looking uh, replica of a picture of Adolf Hitler. Of huh. what I would look like at 30. And so uh, everybody else's were hung up in the hallway and proudly displayed. Mine was never shown the light of day. Uh, and they explained to me, this, is, uh, this, is, this was Hitler. And I said, who is Hitler? And then I got the whole Holocaust education at least a year before the rest of my class. So, and oddly enough, you were also a very good painter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. I could. I, anyway, that's the Jewish humor. There you right go. There. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, you want to you make jokes about it, and it's understandable. Well, one of these days, you're going to meet a new guy I signed, David Hetty, out of, out of Montreal and Toronto. He goes back and forth. And he has this joke, and I'm going to murder it poorly here because I don't deliver other people's jokes well. But he basically talks about how his grandfather didn't have to deal with the horrors of the Holocaust uh -huh. because he was beaten to death in a pogrom several years prior. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all the same. It's all the same thing of how do we cope with such trauma? It's like, you know, what, I have a joke that I like to do about um, 
how I have no sympathy for the Christian kids who, when they they say to me how upset it was the moment that they realized they were deceived by their parents and found out that Santa wasn't real. I go, I'd much rather find out that Santa's not real than that Hitler was, you know? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> That's that, You're going to tell a Jewish person to have sympathy that Santa's not real? I found out Santa wasn't real because I wanted to stand in line for Santa, and my dad was pissed. Mm -hmm. My dad was not, he he had a very deeply religious background because that's the way his family was, but then he went down a secular path. And, and, and who can blame him? I mean, he saw his religious father starve to death in front of him. The stories that he told me, like, he didn't go into details, but like, you know, it was Siberia, long winter, right? Takes a while to starve someone to death. Mm -hmm. My dad said we couldn't dig the grave deep enough. So we buried him, and I planted sticks in the ground to keep away the wolf. Can you imagine the horror of that is one of your earliest memories? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it makes perfect sense that, you know, you would be a big comedy fan. I mean, that you come from that background. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, there, there was that, and my folks both served in Israel in the army. And, and so how did your dad wind up in Israel? It's, you know... I don't know all the details. Unfortunately, when we found out my dad was terminally ill, I wanted to interview him, and he said, I've lived through hell once. I'm not going to do it again. And at the time, I was, you know, I was going, I was 24. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, I was 23. And I was like, one day I'm going to have kids, and I'm not going to remember these stories. How am I supposed to tell them? I got news for you. When he said that, it wasn't that he was saying that he didn't want to recall his memories because they were hell. He just thought that you were such a shit interviewer that he didn't want to. <laughs> well, that's probably true. Um, I, I can't even believe you want to interview me because like, as an interviewee, I'm no prize either. No, you I'm know? having a good time. Well, yeah, because we've known each other. Your listeners, they're killing themselves right now. No, they're um, not. <laughs> anyway, how he got to Israel, my understanding was the young children were smuggled out by train. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they were smuggled across Russia by train. And if you know anything about, this is a long, long story, the gauge of the rails on the trains in Russia are different than the rest of Europe. Or at least they used to be. So once they get to the border of, you know, Eastern Europe, had to switch to different trains and, and slowly smuggled to displaced person camps. Mm -hmm. Where are those displaced person camps? They're all in Germany, and a lot of them are on the sites of former concentration camps. Mm -hmm. So these kids eventually make it to Germany. My dad said, I saw Germany by train after the war. I loved Germany after the war. It was a very flat, the countryside was flat. Mm -hmm. The industrial areas were flat. Mm -hmm. The cities were flat. And you could see in his mind's eye that he, was, he wasn't looking at you. He was looking back into his history through his mind and seeing the bombed ruins of Germany. He didn't say it, you know, everything's flat. And then he would like come back to reality and shake his head and say, I loved Germany after the war. <laughs> Leveled and, and dis destroyed. destroyed. And uh, he, they were basically put in a concentration camp that had been cleaned up. And apparent, uh, he says he is a child he met. You, the American soldiers, you know, they gave them baseball gloves. They didn't know whether to eat them mm -hmm. or to steal them. Right. You know, they didn't know that it was for a game and, like, the soldiers' hearts were breaking, so they taught them how to play catch. And some of them may well have been comedians that you wound up loving, Don Rickles or maybe. Uh, Mel Brooks. Maybe, or, maybe they were. Carl Reiner, these guys were all in the war. They were all war. in the war. Yeah. Um, Jonathan Winters. Jonathan, all, all working to liberate. Right. You know? Um, anyway, 
they were put up in this concentration camp and my dad said in one of the straw mattresses he found like a piece of hard hard bread with like gnawing teeth marks on it and he was done sleeping and then like apparently mickey marshall and dwight eisenhower show up with their retinue to review what's going on Mm -hmm. see all these kids are horrified that the kids are put in this concentration camp Mm -hmm. knowing that they're jews and survivors from russia and have been through the horrors and they took them to the fanciest hotel which was like turned into a refugee place for german citizens threw out all the germans and put the kids in the hotel that's good and my dad said they laid out a buffet basically and the kids didn't know what to do so the whole buffet within within seconds of being seen was in their pockets for you know maybe later i need food Mm -hmm. and eventually through networks of displaced persons, he got back in, in with one of his aunts, or one of not even one of his aunts, one of my aunts, one of his sisters, who had married. And, and I, I mean, the stories go on and on, and I haven't been able to verify a lot of them because I've lost my favorite aunts, so I can't talk to them about it. Um, and my other ones are not worth, you know, talking to about this particular bit. Mm-hmm. So eventually, reunite with family, some family in Germany and start to figure out how to make their way to Israel, which I've never been fully told how. I know some of my relatives were stuck in Cyprus and in, in camps there. I wouldn't be surprised if they paid their way with that food in their pockets. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. I, I'm not gonna make light of this. I, I'm yeah, not gonna, yeah. this is the yeah, one, yeah. everyone has their red button issue not sure, and I'm not gonna yeah. make fun of this. Well, this good. is too much human suffering. We're funny because of these things, yeah. but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna poke I light respect at that. It. Eventually, I mean, my dad was in the Israeli army and you know, he was attached to Unit 101 and, you know, a, a military police and saw a lot of things and fought in the Sinai campaign. Incredible what he saw in his lifespan, uh, how he saw the Jews go from having nothing to having their own land. And, and he was there for it. Not only to have it. their own land, but to have the ability to defend themselves. Yeah, that must that must have blown his mind. I, it definitely formed, we, when we moved to Nebraska, oh, this is the worst. It felt like exile. My dad was, we went wherever my dad got a better job, right. okay? So it wasn't Siberia. I didn't suffer. Don't take me wrong. I'm not trying to draw a parallel to the horrors of my father's life. But we used to live in the Pocono Mountains. We were three hours from Manhattan. So three hours from Manhattan means we're three hours and 25 minutes from the Bronx. Mm-hmm. From, from civilization. We're in civilization and we're near civilization. And like, look at this city that's built by, by, by us as immigrants. Was there, was there a feeling as a kid, like, I can't complain about anything, dad survived Siberia? Um, later on when I was trying to date, yes. Mm-hmm. Any advice he would give me was totally useless. <laughs> like what, give me an example. Um, I was depressed about not getting any dates. And he's like, when I was your age, I didn't even have a pair of shoes. Or he only had one because no, the other ones were very. No, no, the the shoes I had, he basically. Right, right. He, no, I know. In his, in his, and he had a pretty good. He was no accent really. Really. Yeah. Sometimes he would screw the words around a little bit, but no accent. But yeah. he would. He when he said a, he meant a pair of shoes that didn't have holes in them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then he'd say, "I didn't even have that after Siberia and being in Israel and surviving everything. All I had was a girlfriend who was your mother." So even he, without a pair of shoes and having survived the he Holocaust, even had a girlfriend. Even he had a girlfriend. <laughs> Did you point that out? No, because I was just sitting there, like horrified at. Right. This doesn't relate. We're from different worlds. My world is bullshit compared to what you had to do. Yeah. But yet, I still 
want to see a girl. Right. <laughs> we didn't even know from women when I was a kid. So, like, you know, that his advice generally was spot on. But in that regard, mm. dealing with a kid going through, you know, adolescence, puberty, whatever the hell you want to call it from that time, it, it didn't relate. So that must have been rough. Did your, <laughs> did your dad give you advice with women? How did that go? Uh, he, we had a sex talk when I was 21. And, like, literally, 21, hot summer day. I don't remember what we did, but it was something very warm. In Nebraska. In Nebraska. And what was he doing there at the time? He was a textiles guy. So he had, he'd worked himself up from being a guy with no education, a technical high school, and to being a weaver, to being a weaving supervisor, to being a mechanic, you know, to being a, a, a factory manager and a designer of factories, all with no education. Sounds like a Jew. Yeah. Well, you throw yourself into your life and you try and make a livelihood that you can support your wife and Absolutely. raise your kids within a better future. Isn't it unbelievable? This always blows my mind what Holocaust survivors went on to achieve after living through that nightmare when they came to this country. And, uh, and, and your dad's no exception. How they built industries, entire industries. Yeah. And, uh, and some of them are still going. Yeah. With, and, and still building. Absolutely. Unbelievable. We built it. We they built Israel. They built the whole country. We're and people say Jews can't build. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're great builders. You know. Well, and also, you know, I mean, there's there's plenty of political badness over there, so I don't mm -hmm. want to get too into it. My dad was really quick on the last trip I took to Israel with him in 1987 to show me like flaws. You know, like this license. You notice anything difference between these cars? Well, the license plates are different colors. You know why that is? No. One's an Arab car and one's an Israeli car. And that's where things start to be wrong here. Mm -hmm. You know, and he, like I, loved his people. Yeah. And that was a big thing to him. But, like, pointing out the, the, the things that were wrong was also important to him. And what age did comedy become a thing for you? Comedy was always in my life. Um, my mom, being an Israeli, and my parents both... She brought a few records from Israel to America to have something familiar. They didn't come with a lot, but she brought some records. You, and you don't know about Hagashisha Hever, do you? No. Uh, educate me. It's an, it's an Israeli sketch comedy group. And they're, they were original, highly original. But in essence, they were Israel's Monty Python. And uh, it won't translate into English properly, but like, one of the things is, what do you call that thingamajig on the, on the tea kettle? Mm -hmm. And it was like... Well, it's called it's called this, and I don't know how, how the word translates. They made up they made up plenty of words. Mm -hmm. Zarbu V was the name of it, which is kind of like something you dip, kind of, but not quite. What what does the name of the group translate to in English? The Pale Tracker. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> it's, it's, Do you get Monty Python? No. There you go. The pale Tracker. Okay. So a lot of times they were called. Hagashishim, the trackers. So I'm guessing these guys were big in the 60s in Israel? Uh, yeah, yeah, mid to late 60s. So, and you were born in the 70s? I was born in 1970. Okay. So so this is like the earliest comedy you remember? Definitely the earliest comedy I remember. And uh, I would ask my mom to play certain routines, like that one in particular that I was just trying to poorly do justice to, which I, I shouldn't be the one to do justice to it, because they modified the Hebrew language. I, I'm not going to be giving you examples, because I'm not going to be able to, my reference isn't deep enough to know, mm -hmm. but they basically came up with gibberish words that became, and phrases, and 
things that really impacted the use of modern Hebrew. All right, you ready to, to transition into the philosophy? Sure. Okay, so the guy that Alex picked for you is E.H. Carr. Have you heard of him? I have not. Alex writes, what you have in common with him is, he says, Dan preserves comedians' legacies by putting out records, so I picked a philosophy of history. Oh, okay, that makes sense. He says, E.H. Carr, which is an abbreviation for Edward Hallett uh, Ted Carr, lived from June 28th, 1892 to November 3rd, 1982. Uh, he was an English historian, diplomat, journalist, and international relations theorist, and an opponent of empiricism within hysterectomy? Hyster <laughs> no. It says, an opponent of empiricism within historiography. Carr was best known for his 14-volume History of the Soviet Union, in which he provided an account of Soviet history from 1917 to 1929. I wonder if any of your family's history would be in there. Could be. That's yeah, I mean, I, I do have some stuff that happens in Odessa in my family. That would be an interesting connection. For his writings on international relations, particularly the 20 years crisis, the 20 years crisis, and for his book, What is History?, in which he laid out historiographical principles rejecting traditional historical methods and practices. Alex gives us a bit of a synopsis also, saying, Carr believes that the way we understand history is based very much on the personalities of the historians who tell us. There are so many facts at our disposal that it is human nature to pick the ones that suit the story or theory we're trying to tell. For example, millions crossed the Rubicon, but only Julius Caesar's crossing is ever mentioned. Carr divides facts into categories. Facts of the past, which are facts that historians deem unimportant, and historical facts, which are facts that they decide are important. The way they decide on these is arbitrary to their own dispositions, and there is no logical difference. This is similar to Michel Foucault's theory that history is not as linear and movie-like as we wish it was. While historians manipulate facts, facts also influence historians, making history a dialogue between past and present. Historians are also influenced by their present, so their past is constantly filtered through their now. That's pretty, pretty deep and moving, you know? He's being empirical about it, which means instead of just randomly picking the facts to tell the story, right. He's being like, no, all the facts are important. Yeah, it, that's exactly what it means. Yeah, I see. Yeah, see. Yeah. So, so, I wonder if if how this relates to you. Um, do you I, think? Do you think in putting out the record? I mean, you're 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 doing the editing. You're cutting it. Essentially, you're preserving a little piece of history, which is a performance. Right. And you're putting it out there, and and the way in which you tell history is through your finished product, which is right. an album. Right. So what about this speaks to you and, and the process of putting out an album? It's tough because it seems like I'm the things that this guy is working against because he's trying to include all the facts in history and not say saying every every picture tells a story, right? But the job of editing an album is picking the best pictures. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of an interesting conundrum to to put the two together, you know what I'm saying? Right. I uh, I I'm 
I oftentimes record multiple performances. I prefer to record multiple performances because before before other people have made this analogy, it's you're a jazz musician and your instrument is the audience. Mm-hmm. So you know the reaction you would like to get. So if you're recording a performance where you're not getting that reaction for at least part of the show, at least that part of the show needs to be re-recorded. Mm-hmm. In comedy, you might as well re-record the whole show in case. Are, are there times when you kind of want to leave a little bit of that struggle in the album? To It depends, because usually it's not worth documenting that, because usually it's just some drunk asshole just trying to ruin the show because he's a drunk asshole. What if it's a comic kind of toiling with the material a little bit, trying to make it go over with a crowd that doesn't just that doesn't quite get it? Is that I actually like to do that from time to time. Yes, depending on the comic, if it fits their general nature, sure. Because you want to give that real live show feeling. Yeah, I mean, like Mark Maron's a good example of that. You wanna, okay, I see. Maybe now I'm beginning to see his point. So instead of editing for purity, sometimes you edit for the actual experience of the event and you have to work to maintain that because even though you're jumping back and forth between shows if there are callbacks to that thing that happened later on you have to remember to put those back in Mm -hmm. you know so like uh that becomes a big part of the process as well and a lot of times we'll have hidden tracks on stuff that include extra things that shed light on the recording of the album or the editing of the album or you know like with Judy Gold, one time she said, I swear too much. Can you take a lot of, out a lot of the F words? And I say, but uh, a lot. Can you take those out? So I took all of the ones that I could take out, and I just saved them in an extra track that I would just had on my computer. Uh-huh. And then I decided as a practical joke for myself, no one's ever going to hear this. Right. I'm just going to hide it on the album. <laughs> so like, if you know how to find the hidden track, yeah. you can find this hidden track of her going, Fucker, fucking fuck, 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 fucker. You know, just like, oh, just like quickly edit, and then it's but uh, and uh, so uh, just like over and like all of those. Yeah, yeah. Just because I was like, okay, fine. If I have to do this, I'm gonna save them all, and I'm gonna put this on here for myself. <laughs> and no one's gonna. And now people will know because I said it, and it'll, yeah, it'll irritate me when I see it in print. But I, I but I, I did it, you know, for me. Yeah. You know, when we recorded Lewis Black's Carnegie Hall album for Comedy Central, I had a habit of hiding stuff in his albums too. And uh, with Carnegie Hall, even though it wasn't my album, I got approval from Comedy Central. Oftentimes when you're using a lavalier microphone, which is a, a, wire, a, a microphone where it's on your collar, like on TV, mm-hmm. and it runs a wire and then it sends it electronically someplace. Um, oftentimes that microphone gets turned on before you go on. So you hear some stuff you shouldn't necessarily hear. A lot of times a guy goes, takes a leak. Yeah. You know, like all that stuff. Like on like on airplane or a <laughs> naked gun, yeah, Leslie yeah. Nielsen yeah. does that, you know? Yeah. To tie it back to that. And uh we have all of that on Carnegie Hall. And him like asking a stage hand out something is what this one sign says and you can hear him getting ready to go on stage and you hear the guy rapping up right before he goes on and then it's like the intro and he's on. So as yeah. somebody who loves listening to albums yourself, you kinda try to create that feeling for the little listener of I try like and they're cre- there, pretty much. I, yeah, of course. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, comedy is not something you can record in a, re- in a studio without an audience reaction. So if you don't have a live recording, you have nothing. Were there any breakthrough moments from when you started recording comedians until now when you're like, ah, that's what I have to do there? Or, or were there any, like, kind of uh, revelations as, as, uh, as time went on? I, I think most of those revelations are technical ones that happen at the venue itself setting up to record. Mm-hmm. Editing has always seemed fairly straightforward to me. Um, I don't, 
comics put a lot i mean i use my process has changed over the times so like i don't do everything that i used to do i sometimes pawn some of the work back off to the comic mm -hmm. so i'm not the one making the only selections on stuff because if i'm doing it then i have to listen to it 40 50 60 hours right and so i put that part of the work back on the comic now but i mean when i was doing it rigorously and slowly you know it was like put as much good stuff out on this record and make it hold together are there ever moments when you're editing an album and you have sort of like an ethical dilemma of like, do I leave this in? Do I take this out? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember any enough. of them? Um, y you know... You don't have to tell me the comic, but you can tell me the situation. I'm trying to think of the situation. Sometimes you don't like what a person says, but you have to stay true to what they say, even if it's one of your hot buttons, you know? Yeah. If they're talking about something that irritates you if they're being true to themselves you have to let them say it that's got to be tough yeah so you're putting out something in the world that you don't agree with yeah but you know that's art art isn't something you always have to agree with right so that's kind of how i i worked through that it seems like you've sort of found some kind of a niche in in the comedians that you put out um you see it more than i see it like my basic rule for picking artists which i think is what you're getting at here is make me laugh if i laugh you're f if i laugh you're funny it's not a specific kind of comedy that like really fits the stand-up record i mean some people would say you know to me I, I you know the description is always edgy thought-provoking comedy in the footsteps of lenny bruce and george carlin and bill hicks but uh to me it's make me laugh if you make me laugh you're funny so it is basically it's all filtered through your sense of humor absolutely so that there's going to be a uniformity in in that yeah. I mean, and, and that's kind of almost what we're talking about with uh, E.R. Carr here because he's saying, you know, that the historian is the one telling the story in that way. <laughs> There's the tie-in. There's the tie-in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really does kind of fit. I mean, you're telling history as you see it of what's funny at this time. Right. So you I'm know? not being historiographical. Historiographical. <laughs> historiographically. Wow, I see why you were stumbling with that. Yeah, it's a Historiographically tough one. accurate, I guess. Right. Yeah. I, I am coloring the story with my own biases. Yeah. So. Wow, that's actually brilliant of you to tie it back. Um, thank you. <laughs> I would have never been, I would have been lost at sea on that one. Well, I have a paragraph here from ER Card. You want to uh, you want to read that, Dan? Yeah, sure. Here we go. The facts are really not at all like fish on the fishmonger's slab. They're like fish swimming about in a vast and sometimes inaccessible ocean. And what the historian catches will depend partly on chance, but mainly on what part of the ocean he chooses to fish in and what tackle he chooses to use. These two factors being, of course, determined by the kind of fish he wants to catch. By and large, the historian will get the kind of facts he wants. History means interpretation. Indeed, if standing Sir George Clark on his head, I were to call history a hardcore of interpretation surrounded by a pulp of disputable facts, my statement would, no doubt, be one-sided and misleading, but no more so, I venture to think, than the original dictum. So essentially, you're a fisherman, and the comedians are the fish. Yeah. So, like, if you're fishing for tuna, you're going to catch tuna, is what he's saying. Right. You're not going to catch swordfish. You're not going to catch, you know, albacore. Well, albacore is tuna. What am I talking about? You're not going to catch herring mm -hmm. to be tying it back. Um, I'd say that's highly accurate, actually. I, I don't... This guy was actually... 
Very, very wordy, but very on top of what he was getting. And I mean, it is precise. What is this, what is he saying in the second part there? Indeed, if, I don't know Sir George Clark, but indeed, if if standing Sir George Clark in his head, I were to call history a hardcore interpretation, surrounded by a pulp of. Okay, so what you're saying is, um, you are doing a serious amount of like. Here's what I think this thing is but you're basing it on something you might not know the actual truth of. It's like when you try to interpret a song's lyrics, but you don't know what the guy was writing about. Mm -hmm. Well, seriously, this guy was actually, he was writing about man's inhumanity to man and how that relates to him not be, being totally undateable. But he's actually writing about this great sandwich he had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you don't know that. We didn't start the fire. Great matzo ball soup, actually. <laughs> I doubt that, but I doubt that. But I mean, like, but who knows? It's it's that's the closest analogy I can make. Okay, you put a lot of meaning into this thing that means a lot to you, but it might not be what it actually is about. Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying there. Hold on, let me do a quick search for who's Sir George Clark. Oh, look, he started Clark shoes. You ever get a pair of Clarks? No, they're pretty good. Here he is, Sir George Norman Clark. He lived from February 27th, 1890 to February 6th, 1979, and he was an English historian, academic, and British Army officer. He was the, uh, what's this word? Chichel? Chichel? I don't know. He was a professor of economic history at the University of Oxford from 1931 to 1943, and the... Regis Professor of Modern History at the University of Cambridge from 1943 to 47, and he served as a, provo a provost? Provost, yeah. A provost of Oriel College, Oxford from 1947 to 57. Okay, so he was, uh, he was a historian that probably... Competed with com him. Competed. Mainly for that's, dates. That's the, that's the quick answer to that. So how do you feel about... That's funny, historians competing for dates. It could mean an entirely different thing than being with women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, no, 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 1099 is mine. Being around comedy for... How many years has the label been going on now? So, I mean, since I became stand-up records officially, 13 years. But I consider it to be more 15 years because that's when I started doing comedy records. So for, for the past 15 years, you've been producing records for comedians, recording them, going all around the country and around the world. We did mine in Scotland. Right. And, uh, and being a part of these great careers guys like mark Marin and doug stanhope and lewis and uh, uh hannibal and maria they, they have all kind of shot up to stardom since working with you right and uh and you must know so much now about the art of stand-up comedy uh have you been tempted to do it yourself the temptation's always there unfortunately i don't like to talk in public Talking to you here is one thing, because mm -hmm. it's the two of us, and we have a history, right? Talking to a group of strangers, nah. It's so funny that it's like, it's like you kind of work with a sh with all the greatest mushroom chefs in the world, right? And uh, and you smell the mushrooms, and you see the mushrooms, and you touch the mushrooms, but you're like, I don't, I don't care to taste the mushrooms. Uh, I like beef. <laughs> you're like, uh, like, but tasting the mushrooms is is the most fun part of it. I'll just, I'll just bring the mushrooms to the public. Look, I mean, there's so much self-serving bullshit in comedy. Uh -huh. You know, failed failed comedians that are writers that uh, re review comedies exclusively. Mm -hmm. Failed comedians that, uh, you know, 
are DJs now, failed comedians that, you know, own clubs. You know, why would I want to join that cliche? But you never had the impulse to want to do it, just to feel it, feel what... what... No, because I can be t- I, if I can sit in a conversation and I can make you laugh, mm-hmm. I win because I know how funny you are. <laughs> Thanks. So, I mean, it, but it's not just you. It's like I work with dozens and dozens of comics. Right. So if we can sit and casually have a conversation, I can make them laugh. So you have no need for that validation. You don't, you don't want to get my, va- my validation is that I get to do the work. Right. So you like the fishing. I like the fishing. Okay, it's like I like the fishing, but I don't like the fish. I I, I wouldn't want to be a fish. You don't want to be a fish. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Go. Okay. There's the analogy. I don't know where I came up with mushroom chefs, but... That's okay. Well, since we're talking about fish. <laughs> it goes well. Yeah. <laughs> nice piece of portobello mushroom with your fish. Not bad. What's the most fun part? Is it the fishing? Is it finding a new fish, a, a big catch? What or, or A big catch isn't really of concern to me so much as, uh, like... Being taken in a different direction by a joke than you expect. So the excitement's still within the art. The excitement's within the art and the delivery and the viewpoint of the artist. I mean, it, it, when, when, when somebody gets you with a joke that you weren't expecting, that joke stays with you for a long time. I mean, there are jokes that I heard Jake Johansson do on Letterman mm-hmm. when I was like 13, 14 years old that still stick with me. As a matter of fact, I, I, like, I can't even speak to Jake Johansson when I see him because I'm so in awe from then wow i've been watching him my whole life wow i'm sure he'd be flattered i've I've actually told him before but i I know i made a send myself sound like a jerk stalker sort (laughs) so i just quickly tail between the legs and fucked off and left him alone (laughs) all right well uh okay well let's let's move forward here with these quotes uh dan if you'll do the honor sure on the subjectivity of history study the historian before you begin to study the facts that's actually fantastic because my dad big fan of history big fan of josephus big fan of talking about josephus and what he got wrong and right Mm -hmm. so like yeah knowing who the historian i mean if you read a history book by bill o'reilly you know it's going to lean a certain way right so maybe maybe abraham lincoln wasn't fully the best president in the world because he freed the slave you know whatever i'm not saying bill o'reilly said that i'm saying that his viewpoint colors what he's going to cover that's a hundred percent correct I wonder if this could be applied to you as uh, being replaced by the historian. Study, study Dan Schlissel before you study the comedians that he picks. Oh, God, you guys will be bored, bored, bored. <laughs> what the hell <laughs> shit happened to Dan that made him fucked up enough to like these guys? Like, <laughs> Well, that's easy, Nebraska. Moving to Nebraska at 11 years old. Yeah, being the outsider, you became, you know, you found a kinship with comedians, obviously, and they're being outsiders as well. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think that I, I think that covers that one. Yeah, I think yeah. so. On uh, okay, next quote. Um, on why we try to manipulate history. History is the long struggle of man by exercise of his reason to understand his environment and to act upon it. I get that one. That's self-evident. I think. Yeah. I mean, how do you? It's how can you get where you're going when you don't know where you've been? Right. So I think, I mean, as Jews in particular, history is of utmost importance. You know why? What do you hear from every Holocaust survivor? What are the two words you hear from any Holocaust? Never forget. Right. So then you wind up remembering every fucking horrible thing. Mm -hmm. And all the good things, but they're all outweighed by the horrible things. (laughs) And the horrible things are what become the definition of what... But the reason you never forget is because you don't want to repeat. 
It's, right. They may as well really be saying never repeat. Right. But, you know, how do you but never it, how repeat? Do you, how do you say you never, never repeat? Yeah, you if never you're always forget. repeating. Yeah. How do you never repeat if you're always repeating? Never repeat. You heard me? Never repeat. Mm-hmm. Never repeat. Right. Yeah. Yeah, never forgets way easier. <laughs> way more logical. That's can only, just, you can only say never repeat once. Exactly. <laughs> There's my physics at work there. Yeah, how much has, has your physics gone into what you do now? It, your, help, your it helps in being able to eyeball a room and know where to hang microphones so you don't have wave standing wave issues and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's really all just like physics is a form of philosophy ultimately. Because you're trying to decipher how the world works, and then you're trying to reason through it and make it accept, make an acceptable model of it. That's that's what I learned. Oh, that's this what, is a situation I, I'm put in. Here's how I get out of it. It's kind of like what you're doing has always been the same. You know, trying to figure out how the world works. That's probably why you're attracted to the comedians that you're attracted to. I think that's probably the thread that runs between you know you say it's as simple as they make you laugh but it's probably a little deeper than that it's probably that there's something that resonates with in you when you see these comedians that seem to be saying hey i think i figured out how this world works and that that seems to be what you've always been kind of chasing yeah i mean that's uh there's no greater moment than when a comedian tells you a joke and you laugh about it and then you realize oh fuck i do exactly what that guy's just talking about mm-hmm. oh You're shit that i do that wait i can change that yeah that, like that's the best moment in comedy to me you're still looking for those how does this world work, work maybe moment. yeah maybe so it's, it seems like a good answer is any i mean i don't you know the difference between us is you know you're you're really fairly religious compared to me and i don't I don't think religion is an answer. I think that answers come from within. And maybe that is, maybe that ultimately does touch the divine, mm-hmm. but that part of it isn't part of the equation for me because even if it touches the divine, so what? You're the one that came up with the answer. Well, the way I see it, religion is a very good tool to try and make a connection with God. And uh, I think that's, that's a lot of why we're here, you know, is to try and connect. See, and, I, and I'm not fully... Con- Here's where things get weird for me. I believe, not literally, but I believe everything in the Old Testament to some extent. But I, at the same time, I also know it's an allegory to get a bunch of people to behave. To an extent, that's true. But it's also, it's also a code. It's also written in code. And it's, it's deep philosophy, wisdom, and uh, uh, there's a lot to it. It's, it's, it's got four le- they say that it's got four levels of interpretation. And one of them is allegorical. But, right. you know, one of them is, is more mystical. I, I don't remember what the, all of them are. One well, that's of them okay. We don't need to go in through that. But, but, I mean, let me give you an example. I know that there's no historical documentation of Moses, actual mm-hmm. historical documentation. Well, that's an interesting argument to have based on our, our guy here because uh, who, who is, the, is considered the historian, really? What constitutes historic, historical documentation? Okay, well, let me say in the historic records so far... There's been no document. Maybe there, maybe there, maybe he was. Look, you're, you're, we're getting away from my point. My point is, I don't think. Fuck, I got to think about this for a second now because it's screwed my thought pattern. I don't, I don't know of any historical documentation of Moses, and yet, I believe he actually spoke to God face to face. That's the dichotomy of faith, right there. Right. 
I mean, I don't think Adam and Eve were Adam and Eve. I think that it might have been some previous... I, I believe in evolution. Well, but, you, if you, I mean, if you really think about what we're reading here, history is written by people who want... You to to exclude certain things and 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 leave and put other things. They all have uh, an agenda, historians. So right. you know, it, it not showing up in certain history books would make perfect sense based on our our guy E. H. You're you're right. You're right. But I mean, like, there's it's funny the things that tie up historically to the Bible. The Bible goes through all the names of the rivers, right, and right. the Garden of Eden, and then it says that man left east of Eden. We know that. Man started in Africa and eventually headed east through the Middle East to the rest of the world, leaving Eden and heading to the east. That ties. That's that's accurate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of it. It's pretty. It's pretty impressive. And then once you get into the uh, gematrias and and the the numerical values assigned to the letters, the Hebrew letters, and, right? Uh, and and uh, the connections between that. It's it's all pretty. It's all pretty interesting to say the least. Right, right, right. So anyway, I, I just, you know, I, I just thought it was an interesting... I wanted to tell you that I actually have the religious and the not religious at war within myself constantly. Yeah, that's called being a Jew, Dan. <laughs> My friend describes it perfectly. He says, uh, he, calls it, uh, he says most Jews suffer from restless soul syndrome. I, you know, maybe that's it. Yeah. Actually, that sums it up nicely. Yeah. Um, okay, look, let's see what quote three is here. I mean, you gotta be having a fight inside of you. If your grandfather chose Yom Kippur over life, I mean, uh, that that's built into you genetically, you know. You know. But but Jewish law says not to do that. Yeah, he may have he may have made the wrong decision based on Jewish law or interpreted it, you know, his own way. But still. But how could someone so religious know that survival is more important? I don't know. I'd ha that's a good question for to uh, if we could ask him. I don't know why he chose to make and that I, choice. And I wish I wish I could ask my dad. My but my dad was so young when he passed. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. So like, it's a it's a real way to mess with your head too, and be like, here's a guy, who you descended from, who chose religion over life. That that's gotta really, you know, do a number on you when especially because I'm not religious. Right. Right. And, it, and 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 you can look at it both ways, you know. Right. Like, wow. I mean, religion was so important to him; it's got to be important to me. Or you could be like, man, you know. Look I at how important it was, and it killed him. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there you go. That's that's actually a pretty good summary of some of what is at war in my head. Right. Well, uh, I so don't blame you. Comedy drowns that out a little, I guess. <laughs> I don't. I don't blame you. That's a good. You've got a good strong battle going on in there, dude. <laughs> <laughs> he was protected from the the wolf with sticks, you know. Because we you, couldn't d dig deep enough. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta live with that internal. Uh, that story horrifies me that he had to learn that. Yeah. At, at such a young age, I don't know. I know that he was done with the war. Was started in thirty nine and ended in forty five. So my dad was seven by the time the war ended. Mm -hmm. So by seven, he knew. That you, you, when you bury a body in the winter, you can't dig the grave deep because the ground is frozen, so you have to put sticks to keep wolves away. So did your dad keep Yom Kippur his whole life after that? Um, let me think. Yeah, he did. He, uh, but he didn't, he never went to synagogue. He went to synagogue for my bar mitzvah and my brother's bar mitzvah, and I don't remember seeing him in a synagogue ever other than that. Ever. But he did keep Yom Kippur. And when his mom passed... He sat shiva, but he didn't. It's not required for anyone else. Hmm. 
Yeah, as much as you must have a tough time with it, think about what he must have had to... You know, that was his dad who left him on account of Yom Kippur and... And, uh, and to leave, in, leave you in Siberia is no... No treat. But then again, my dad died while we were in Nebraska. It's a parallel. It's not a, it's not a direct parallel because my dad suffered way more than I ever did. I'm not going to try and pretend that being in Nebraska is the same as being in Siberia. But it was it was also an exile that he took us to and he died there, you know. Right. He passed away. So in my family, I didn't know my grandfather. My child won't know their, their grandfather. So it's a, it, that troubles me too. But that's a whole other thing and not philosophy. That's just something that makes you stay up at night, you know? <laughs> oh, then it might be philosophy then. Um, third quote. On how different eras of historical study contradict each other, thereby making neither of them objective. The modern historian has the dual task of discovering the few significant facts and turning them into facts of history and of discarding the many insignificant facts as unhistorical. He's an editor. Okay. That makes sense. But this is the very converse of the 19th century heresy that history consists of the compilation of a maximum number of irrefutable and objective facts. What's he mean by that? The modern historian has a dual task of discovering the few significant facts. Okay, so you have to figure out what the facts are and say, this is what history is. Right. And the rest of it is shit. Right. It's left on the table. Left the on the table. Yeah. It doesn't exist. And then somebody else can eventually rediscover those facts and say, this other guy was wrong. These are the facts. Right. Somebody could take the same recordings that you took and make an entirely different album. Absolutely. Absolutely could. Um, it wouldn't be as good, though, because I'm pretty good at what I do. Oh, yeah. I know that. The 19th century, the way history was written was, take everything, and that's the history. Which is arguably true, but then it makes for a much more boring history with innumerable facts too thick of a textbook yeah for it's me. telling you you gotta you get to get to the story asshole mm -hmm. you know cut the shit and get to the point which is what a comedian has to do anyway right which is what i have to do in order to reflect what the comedian does mm -hmm. so like a lot of times in a stand-up act a comedian if they're reading the audience and trying to figure it out sometimes they take longer pauses than they need to or if they're still working in their head like what where they want to go my job is to go in and make those pauses shorter because on an audio recording, those long pauses sound like a lack of confidence yeah. as opposed to like, I know what I'm doing and I know where I'm taking you. So that's a pacing thing. Hmm. So I'm quickening the pacing a lot of times. You're changing history. You're showing people, hey, this is the show, but it's, you've it's changed really the, the way show. it went a little bit there. No, I mean, what I'm doing yeah. is, not, is not presenting history so much. I'm presenting what I feel is an idealized version of the artist's intended act. Right. Which is what I said at the beginning. I'm using all sorts of tricks to make it be polished. Right. In essence. So I guess he's what? saying, they're, they're saying that you take what you need and you chuck the rest. At first, when we were talking about this philosopher, I thought what he was talking about was the opposite of what I do. You have to include more stuff. But what he's saying is, indeed, that what I'm doing is you take what you need and you get rid of the rest of it. Mm -hmm. So he and is advocating that. He's advocating not, not the wholesale editing and changing of history, but he's adv advocating that the person that documents it is important as the document and, and indeed affects the document itself, which is me. I, I guess I'm, I'm going in there and taking what the comedian does and making 
what I think is an idealized version of the set. And you're obviously doing a great job with it because you've won countless awards and uh, the albums sell very well and you're still going strong and you never went back to that day job. It's true. This is my living. Has so. been since 2003. The proof is right there. I mean, you're still, you're still doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, many... guess this, I guess this guy's spot on and a genius. Yeah. <laughs> it spoke to you. It's good. It's a good, it was a good it was a good choice of philosophy. Yeah, yeah, good job. So how many albums are now on the label? So there was 144 144 yeah. 144. Yeah. And uh, and how many states have you recorded in? Oh dear lord, I haven't even tried to Do you think you've recorded in every state? No. No, I haven't recorded in Hawaii yet. Have I no no I haven't recorded in Hawaii yet. I have, I've never been to Alaska. I think that's the only state I haven't been to. I've recorded in a lot. What countries? Uh United States, Mexico, Canada, and uh Scotland. And Scotland's me. Yeah. I'm the only one You're took the only you one in Scotland. In, to to the other side of the pond there. I was supposed to record in Hong Kong, but it hasn't happened yet. Okay. Who was that? Paul Ogata. We haven't signed a deal yet. He's a friend and we've talked about recording and making an album. Okay. But it's just the timing's never worked out. So wow, so so you've so four countries, huh? Four countries. Four a lot countries. Of, a lot of states. A ton of states. hundred and forty four ish albums. Uh-huh. And uh and now four years uh, doing a a comedy festival here in Akumal. Yeah, in where Mexico. We're, where we're sitting uh currently recording this and you may have heard the gentle breeze going through the palm trees. As we sit here on the porch at night recording this, it's uh, it's sad because I have to go home tomorrow. But it's been we all do. It's been a it's been a hell of a great week, and we raised and you raised how mu how much did we raise for? Uh, we've so far the 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 count is two hundred and ten thousand pesos. I think that's uh like fourteen thousand dollars at this and, point. And that money all goes to the Red Cross. It all goes to the Red Cross. It's all in memory of my uh, dear friend and. Uh, co-founder of this festival gus lynch who i miss more dearly than i can tell you and you're doing now a roku channel right it's in the works now and hopefully by the time this airs we'll be live and we'll see where that leads us and who knows the future is constantly being rewritten by technology <laughs> history and technology huh yeah so as technology changes we're trying to keep up with the platforms and figure out how to put these things these things that we do and document in people's hands so historians are writing the past and technology is writing the future. Absolutely. And who's writing the present? Me. Okay. Yeah. We're writing the present <laughs> writing right now. As we do this, right. Yeah. But this won't come out until the future. That's fine. Or the past. So uh, we wrote the past and you'll so, have to deal with it in the future, people. Right. We, we wrote the... This is currently the, the present, but it will be the past in the future when this comes out. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So this podcast does it all. <laughs> we're, we're past, present, and future. This podcast is brought to you by time travel. <laughs> and what else have you have you put out books? I did one book for uh, Dwight York, who's a comedian on my label and does a lot of one-liners. Um, we've done audio releases in CD format, on cassette, on vinyl, on eight-track tape. Oh, this is a good time to pitch my vinyl. Yeah, well, yeah, I should. You can pick up my vinyl uh, of the recording we did in Scotland, some kind of comedian. Which I, what year was that recorded in? Two thousand nine, probably. I don't remember. That sounds but, right. But uh, it was done at the Glasgow Comedy Festival. It's a limited 
pressing that we did a hundred of them and uh they'll they'll arrive signed and with the artwork which is done by the artwork is a two color silk screen print done by uh our friend meatbag uh who's a great artist out of minneapolis so you've kind of really made minneapolis the home base of all operations and and you you, you you're still the guy who likes the local talent. You brought a bunch of them out here. Right. You love the Minneapolis comics. You support the whole scene. You well, get I mean, artists it's where I live, from Minneapolis. So. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, appealed to me when I when I met you, and not right away, but as I got to know you as a friend, is that some part of you reminded me of my, my old friend, uh, Harvey Picar, who's since passed. Right. Who kind of made Cleveland, uh, you know, kind of, brought cleveland alive to the rest of the country right and and uh and i kind of feel like you you have that same way of you know taking this midwestern city uh, some you know uh, this piece of our country and saying and presenting it to the, to everybody and that started in nebraska obviously but they pissed you off so they lost the privileges <laughs> but pay a living wage nebraska <laughs> but but you're still the dude who loves the local talent you're still the dude who loves the art and uh, and and you've really created an empire here, and I'm proud of you, Dan. Thanks, man. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad that something's going along. You know, what I mean. And on top of all that other stuff you do, you also support this podcast. True. So I mean, uh, I mean. Oddly enough, I also support a rec league hockey team in Canada. I support a bike racing team in Austin, Texas. I I support this podcast. I support a bunch of magazines that I advertise in. Wow. You know, there's a bunch of weird stuff going on. Well, Dan, it's been a real pleasure getting to hang out with you here. And Thanks, man. Thanks, Thanks for coming down. I'm really glad to have you down here in this weird little mirage that we've built for ourselves yeah it was a lot of fun and, and thanks uh, and thanks again for having me yeah no sweat all right thanks Lo buddy i love you man i love you too thanks for having me on thank you Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the show. Thank you again to Dan Schlissel, my guest, Stand Up Records. Go check out Stand Up Records. Pick up my album, Some Kind of Comedian. Pick up a bunch of great albums. Go, go support Stand Up Records, who support this show. Again, if you can make a donation, go to moderndayphilosophers.net and donate something. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Danny Lobel if you want to contact me like that, or you can say hi at thecomical at yahoo.com. And other than that, have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you so much. I love you. I appreciate you. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. And I'll see you next time with another episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Don't go anywhere. I mean, do go anywhere. Go live your life. But, but stick around. Stay on the feed. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye. <laughs>